it struck me how quickly the fact of a life just starts to immediately disappear when someone dies. Hello and welcome to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright here with my colleague and co-host Lisa Cohen. Hey Lisa. Hi Abby. Tell us a little bit about the conversation that we're going to hear today. So today we're going to bring you a Q&A that followed a recent Film Fridays documentary screening. And of course that's the film series that DuPont co-sponsors with the Journalism School Documentary Program. A few weeks ago we screened Obit, a charming documentary, and heard from its filmmaker Vanessa Gould. Right. The name Obit is short for obituary. Uh, The film dives right into the world of the New York Times obituaries desk, where a group of veteran reporters launch many investigations that turn into really fascinating profiles of the recently deceased. Yeah, it's a really challenging enterprise, I think. I mean, I tell students often that they should avoid, as fledgling reporters, doing stories about dead people because you don't have the main subject of your story to talk to. But uh, these are real vets, and they, they really rise to the challenge. Right. Knowing that there's an entire department dedicated to writing obituaries is something that you just may not have ever, may not have occurred to you. And yet, if you are a consistent reader of the Times, you have enjoyed these beautiful narratives um, consistently over the years. And so it's just sort of nice to know who's been doing this work. And what's it like when you start researching someone's life to write an obituary? And this really answers all those questions in a great way. So let's listen in on an edited version of a conversation with Vanessa and our own Professor Betsy West, who is also a DuPont juror. They pick up their conversation talking about how Gould first became acquainted with the Times obituaries desk. You'll hear her mention Marguerite Fox, a longtime obituary writer who has garnered thousands of bylines in her 10 years on the desk. Well, thank you, Betsy, and thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. Um, So, yeah, I had never read an obituary, like, in my entire life before this project kind of um, found me. And and what happened was, is about seven years ago, one of the subjects in my last documentary film got sick in the middle of his career. And um, he was an utterly unknown, impoverished, struggling artist working outside of Paris in the medium of paper. And when uh, I learned about six months before he died that he had lung cancer, and so I knew that he was going to die, but I hadn't prepared myself for the feeling that you get when a, like an artist dies and the sense that their voice is sort of stopped short. And I panicked um, at, at, at the moment of his death because it, there was nothing, there was no institution in the world to like record him. I had done this small documentary on him and that was it. And so the first thing that I did was contact about 20 newspapers around the world um, just announcing his death. And I sent one or two pictures of his work and said, please contact me if you're interested in learning more. Um, and like two or three days went by and nobody wrote and I kind of like forgot about it or I gave up on it. And then the only paper to write was the New York Times. And I absolutely couldn't believe it. Um, it was Marguerite Fox, who you now have uh, got to know a little bit. And um, we spent like a half day on the phone and um, she was writing it sort of under pressure and she was asking me a lot of questions about his, his early life. Um, and I had only known him sort of in the, the last five or six years of his life as an adult friend. And so I didn't have a lot of answers. And I started 
contacting friends and relatives and broken French and um, there were like things that we were not able to figure out about him and it struck me how like quickly the facts of a life just start to like immediately disappear when someone dies and and so I, I started thinking about like what the obits do and how they're this sort of strange um, meeting place of journalism and history and biography and anthropology even and um, so I started looking at the page and seeing that like eight out of every ten obituaries that the New York Times was writing was about somebody like my friend Eric who I'd never heard of before and who I probably never would have heard of again had I not read this obituary and um, studying what they were doing and as a documentary filmmaker and you guys are all journalists you know like when you see something like that and it like electrifies you I just said, this, this has to be a documentary. So, so how quickly this happened, and your friend died, and you had this interaction with Marguerite Fox, and then when did it dawn on you, oh my goodness, I'm going to make a documentary, and then what did you do? Did you ask her, would, you, would they cooperate, or how did, how did this work? It was really slow, to, to be honest, sort of an unfortunate answer. But what happened first was that, again, people in this room probably know what it feels like. I had other documentary film ideas, but this consumed me. It was like a tunnel vision and it was like I was actually like going through one of those moments in my life when I felt like I understood something in a way that I hadn't before and so I meditated on the idea for about two weeks and then I contacted Marguerite and she loved the idea and so I went into the New York Times and we talked about it and um, she was really receptive but she said you know I need to introduce you to people who won't be as receptive and I, so I went to the editor, the desk editor Bill McDonald next and he said no like 10 times. <laughs> and finally, like I just kept writing him with these ideas and like trying to, like they were like it's not visual enough, like and they work under like confidential issues and obviously under crazy deadline pressure. So like why would he bother with like a filmmaker who wanted to make a movie about them and they had been asked a bunch of times before and that actually like sort of like fired me up. I was like, okay, I'm going to like figure out how to crack this. And so um, eventually he relented, and I met with the entire staff at that point, like around a table, and they were all under deadline, and like, why am I sitting here listening to this documentary filmmaker? And um, then I corresponded with each of the writers, and they sort of were like, okay. And I, I only asked them for one day. Like, I want to film you for one day in your house when you're not at work. We'll have a small crew, and we'll be in and out in like five hours. And I was able to get them to all agree on that. And then I had to go to the corporate side of the New York Times. And they, too, were sort of like, we don't want any cameras in the newsroom. And they had all these sort of like obstacles. And, um, but pers persistence just paid off. I mean, it's really, it's really that simple. It was so clear in my mind that this was such a good topic for a documentary. And so eventually they, they all came around. And we got unlimited access, like in a sense. I mean, it. It's turned out to be a really great documentary, was a, a, a great t idea, but that's not immediately apparent. I mean, you're filming people at their desks, right? I mean, it's not all that visual in a way. You've managed to find a way, though, to really make it come alive, especially with the archive, and the archive is unbelievable. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? And, and did the archive drive your decisions for some of the stories that you told, or you know, how did that how did that work? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I got really excited about the idea of a film that had a lot of ideas um, and 
philosophical elements that were really interesting and trying to figure out how to make that into something that's visual and time-based like film was like exciting to me. So I didn't really see that as something that was confounding. I knew we'd figure it out and I knew that archival could like do a lot of the heavy lifting. And so in my research for each of the interviews with the writers, I pretty much read their entire body of work, which was lengthy, at least in the, on the Ovid's desk, and started marking like obituaries that I thought like, oh, this is really compelling and this could be really visual and sort of like already sort of starting to see a pathway into the film. And then when I interviewed them, I quickly learned that Often they were like, I didn't write that obituary, or I have no recollection of writing that obituary. And I was like, no, you did. And they, were, they couldn't talk about it because they didn't remember it. And so then I was like, well, what do you remember writing? And um, as a journalist, again, you probably have had the experience where you, your, your output is so high that like, what you actually do end up remembering has something kind of special about it. And so the first organizing principle was like, what do the writers remember writing? And that was sort of where we started. And then I reached out and worked with an archivist for about a year, and um, we started just sort of trolling. We wanted stuff that like nobody had seen before, and that was like primary in some sense. And so we didn't want to use familiar people or familiar images, and so we started looking in all these sort of like crazy remote uh, archives to sort of flush out some of these stories. And when we found something that was beautiful and fresh and that like upon like 30 viewings, we still couldn't stop like taking our eyes off of it. That was sort of eventually how we, you know, drew the next thing. But we really wanted to keep the stories really simple and visual and just that could be supported by the five or six sentences that the writers were reading from the obits. But then, you know, you start having to make even tougher choices that support the structure of the film. How, how many days did you shoot actually in the New York Times, and when did you come up with the idea of structuring it around uh, Bruce Weber? The only way that like, I felt like I was ever going to get an inch with the Times was to like, ask for like, surgically controlled requests. And so I asked for, I think, three days to shoot B-roll, and then three days to film actually like, Verite. And so we started with the B-roll and they kind of got to know the office a little bit and they got used to us sort of hovering around and what the cameras felt like. And then um, we came to the three days when I, I, I pretty much figured out through that trial that Bruce was the, the guy to really focus on. Just a quick note here, the Bruce they just mentioned is Bruce Weber, a veteran reporter who retired last year after eight plus years on the obit's desk. Weber is a central character of the film, which follows him as he writes an obituary for William P. Wilson. And who is William P. Wilson, you may ask? Well, William P. Wilson was the first television consultant in politics. He advised then-candidate John F. Kennedy before his 1960 presidential debate against Richard Nixon which was the first nationally televised debate ever. Right, that debate, which pitted the extremely dapper JFK against a sweaty and uncomfortable-looking Richard Nixon, was all to Kennedy's advantage. Because he looked so good on camera, and Nixon had this 5 o'clock shadow, and he was sweating profusely. It really showed the power of television. Thanks, in no small part, to William P. Wilson. And Bruce Weber wrote his obituary as Vanessa Gould and her crew filmed in the Times offices. Let's jump back in. We came in the first morning of 
following Bruce. And as we were setting up the cameras, he got the assignment of William P. Wilson. And so I was like on my phone, like looking up who was William P. Wilson on Wikipedia, and Bruce is sort of starting to figure out who he is on his computer and stuff. And one of the things that happened, actually, when we were shooting the B-roll, we were in the Times newsroom the day that Robin Williams died, except we had left, like, an hour and a half before that happened. You had, you had left. Yeah, we were like in the crew van, like coming over the Brooklyn Bridge, just from the New York Times newsroom, and like all the radio stations say that like Robin, and I was like, should we go back? And then like, no, the moment had kind of passed, and I was kicking myself about it. But the reason I bring that up, first of all, you never should like, the lesson was still learned, like stay. That was, that's obvious, you should never leave halfway through a day. But, um, the, the William P. Wilson obituary, after I started to understand what the value of an obituary like that is, with, where you see one of the most iconic historical moments in this country that has to do with media and history and politics and presidential elections, but through like a completely unknown person, was such a perfect illustration of what the obituaries do. It's not Robin Williams, but that's an unusual day on the, on the obituary desk. And this is a normal day when you get to see something fresh um, and contextualize it with the pre-existing knowledge that you sort of already have. And so throughout that day, I was just like, this is, this is a really perfect thing that's happening like before my eyes. And we wrapped at the end of the day. We came back the next morning, and he had the correction and stuff like that. And then I sort of forfeited the, the next two days because I was so certain that we had what we needed. So, you so didn't we, shoot we asked the rest. for six days and we ended up only shooting four days. Wow. Yeah, in terms of like documentary filmmaking, we shot so few hours compared to like most projects nowadays. But the archive was so much more. Yeah, yeah. We had and thousands of hours of archive. Yeah, and, and all the graphics you had to do, amazing graphics. Yeah, we, re we rebuilt all of those pages from scratch that you see in the film. One question I have, isn't the Times digitized? Like, why do they still have a morgue? Oh, well. <laughs> um, well, okay, so first of all, the morgue is like the most amazing place you could possibly go in New York City. It's, it is such a treasure. But the obits desk is like the only desk that really uses it anymore because they're the only desk that's like reporting on what happened like pre-1981, which was when everything like with Reuters and LexisNexis and stuff started getting digitized. So it's sort of um, perpetually being evaluated and reevaluated yeah. in terms of its value. But so everything after 1981 has been digitized and can be found on the computer network. But what, what, if you're looking for something before then, it's very likely that what you will find in the morgue you would never have found had you not looked in that single room in the city. Old pamphlets, old magazines, uh, lists of membership organizations. I mean, it's just, it's really remarkable what they can find in there. And um, I mean, here's an example. And this actually didn't make it into the film. Um, do, you want a, do you want a morgue example? Yeah. yeah. Um, so Jeff, was showing me around and on camera <clears throat> and he said I'll, sh I'll tell you an example of something that like where the morgue is really valuable and this is actually internal with the New York Times it's not even like um, media from another organization but he's, he bends down and he starts to try to pull out this old drawer and it won't go and so he walks over to the corner and picks up a crowbar and like whacks it really hard and suddenly the door pops open and inside are the the copy desk schedules 
going back over the, the entire history of the New York Times, and this is a couple drawers, but he pulled out the one that was in question. And he pulls out the copy desk schedule, which I didn't know, is a, is a handwritten list of all the stories that were assigned on any given day by the editors to the writers, and then the editorial desk and it's making its way to print. He pulls out the copy desk schedule of November, I'm gonna get the date wrong, 22nd, 1963? Yeah. And he starts to show me what the desk schedules look like on that day. And first of all, nobody had ever done this before. Nobody internally in the New York Times had ever bothered to look at this before. But you see Kennedy makes a speech, gets in his motorcade, heads toward Dallas, and all of the miniature little dispatches from the road look completely standard until something obviously goes wrong. And suddenly the handwriting gets like super shaky, and suddenly like elements that were normally always filled in are blank. And it's this artifact that's sitting in the, the Times morgue that is an unbelievable lens into such an unusual day. And it's in, it's in human handwriting. And note that you know, there's no replica of that, there's no duplicate of that. And you could look up any day in history that was unusual and find that trace of, of, of human experience. So the morgue is, is remarkable, and that's just one story. I could go, I could tell you a hundred of them. The film makes the point that a lot of newspapers don't do obits. There aren't that many anymore. Is, th is this going the way of the world, do you think? You know, I'm, I'm sort of wary about predicting, but like while we were shooting, the LA Times laid off their obituary yeah. And I think the Chicago papers and the Philly papers were like downsizing. I mean, the Times still considers itself a national, if not an international yeah. organization, so they don't have a particularly local flair. They're struggling. You know what supports the budget for the obituaries desk? Anyone want to guess? The paper yes. The death, yeah. the death oh, notices. Absolutely. The very expensive death They're notices. They're really expensive. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's how they get their budget. People write their own obituary. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, I mean, when I've been on the road with Bruce Weber a lot with this film, and he gets asked this question, and he'd, he'd be a, a much more sort of appropriate person to answer it. But he always says, like, if you are a news organization, like, even he as an obituary writer could concede that if you're going to be writing about like the wars that are going on around the world, or like funding an obituary desk, it's, it's you know, priorities are really tough these days. But I think the Times sees the obits desk as a bit of a franchise and something that keeps people coming to the paper in the morning, going to the website. So at that sense, it, it's not really endangered at the Times, but I think everyone that I talk to, and in fact, I'm going to the Society of Professional Obituary Writers Conference tomorrow morning in Chicago. It's like, it's like there's only like 20 people there anymore, and they're all like wondering what to do with themselves. So um, yeah, I don't think it bodes well, but this is the thing that I always say that to be optimistic about, which is that people have been talking about their friends and idols and loved ones for forever. And so, the medium and the formats are really obviously confusing and the economics that have sort of entangled themselves in this process is weird, but somehow people will continue to do this. It's, it serves, it's, a, it's a service for the living and it serves the emotional needs of people too much. To tell those stories, yeah. to remember those stories. So do we have questions from our audience here? Hi, thank you, this is so delightful. Thank you. Who would think that a movie about 
death notices would be delightful. But um, can you talk a little bit about, you talked about, oh, I spent a year on the music, and I spent a year on the archives, and things like that. How long, and how were you financing this? Hmm. Um, it took about five years from start to finish. And um, it, was a, it was a remarkably, radically difficult project to get financing for. We didn't get any grants at all. Um, and so I would shoot a little bit, um, write a little bit, raise a little bit, shoot another interview with another one of the writers, show it to somebody, raise a little bit more money. So philanthropically, you're raising from individual yeah. don donors, basically? It was almost basically. entirely through private 501c3 donations through a uh, umbrella fiscal sponsorship. Yeah. Did you do a, a, you know, a GoFundMe or, no. you know, or just a... No. I, um, it was a little messy with, like, the branding of the New York yeah. Times, and yeah. it, it just didn't feel like the right thing. So I, um, uh, we just kept pounding the pavement. But we almost pulled out of Tribeca after being, like, one of the first films invited into it because we didn't even have the money then to finish it. You mean to pay for the archive, for example? To pay for the archives that we hadn't... We still had a fully watermarked film, which means that, like, you're using all like samples and you know um, from the archives we had to clear all that and we had to like f go to the lab and, and do like a fair amount of finishing and it was uh, done at the very last minute burning the midnight oil and picking pennies up off the street. Can I just ask one follow-up about the archive because yeah. this came up at the last screen that we did but the, the same idea about archive and you know the rights to it and did you fair sure. use this? I mean there were so many quick cuts that I thought maybe you could do that, but. Yeah, we um, licensed about half of it, and then we fair used about the other half. And um, most of the stuff that was like very centrally shown, like in these little miniature portraits of people and stuff, we just went ahead and licensed because we wanted, sometimes the, the complications with fair use is that even if you can justify it, you can't actually get your hands on like a really high resolution a good version. Good copy of it, yeah. So we had to license stuff that we, we're going to show for like a significant amount of time, even if it would have qualified under fair use guidelines. But then, like especially the closing montage, we fair use that like entire thing, and there's like 500 cuts in that. Question? Yeah. Hi. Um, wonderful, wonderful documentary. My question was, um, I, I found a lot of humor in this, and I wondered whether that was part of your original vision or whether the people were just kind of funny. And obviously, you have to balance the humor with the, you know, the seriousness of it as well, so. Um, yeah, you know, the tone of the film really took its first formative moments when I was helping Marguerite Fox write the obituary for my friend Eric. Um, because I found myself reaching for the humorous stories about him and wanting to send in the humorous photos. He was sort of like a French clown. So he had all these funny pictures and there were so many funny stories about him. And so that was like, that was just like the DNA of the idea, like I think. But I think if you talk to anyone who works in a field where there's an element of sadness or darkness or something like that, they've, they have their own little vocabulary and ways of sort of being humorous about it. Otherwise it just, haunts you and, and makes, you know, and it's, it's sort of like a way of, it's like a ultimate coming to terms with the, the reality of it. It's, it, you know, it's just sort of like a, a stark, plain way of, of seeing that. And so the humor just came out and 
we were always reaching for it at the same time, and then we were always reaching for it when we were in the edit, too, just because it felt like, it, it just felt right, and it felt like the way that I was feeling when my friend died. When there's the sequence of all of the characters answering the question about sort of how, what death more or less means to them, particularly in their job, they're all addressing the camera directly. It, it was more affecting, I think, than what you would typically see in a documentary interview. And I was wondering why that choice, because it is a quite a bold choice, um, delightful choice in this case. Um, and uh, if you use any sort of technology to assist you in doing that. Yeah, so um, anybody know what the uh, Interatron is? Yes. Yeah, so Errol Morris, um, like a couple decades ago, invented this gadget where talking through screens and mirrors and such, the conversation is mediated by some contraptions so that the interviewee is looking like straight down the barrel of the lens. And I'd seen enough Errol Morris movies to know that um, I felt that was brilliant and I sort of really felt like it was appropriate for this film. And there's a consumer version of it called the iDirect, E-Y-E Direct. And um, we used it. It's the poor man's in Yeah, exactly. It's exactly <laughs> yeah. the poor man's in Terratron. And that's just like, I loved using it, but it's, it's a little bit of like a high risk, high return sort of a proposition. And I worked really hard to make it work, but I, I'm grateful that it did work because in an interview scenario, it can be hard sometimes to create an intimate situation where your subjects feel comfortable to talk. And when you're talking through this sort of bizarre and very unnatural gadget, I think you could have problems. But I also have this sort of theory that um, it also creates this sort of sense of distance and it might compel certain people, and I think it did in this case, to even talk more than they would if they were like, Interesting. Yeah, it's so sort of like talking it. to a shrink or something. Like you're not looking at them, and so you start, you know, you start saying stuff. Yeah, it was effective. Thank you. That I mean, you you posed the question to all of the writers, and I guess I'd pose it to you. I mean, you talked about how the death of your friend had affected you and really led you on the journey to make this film. But did the process of making the film change you in some way? It sort of electrified history for me. Like that was like the the thing that like I found it emotion the most emotionally affecting thing for me it was just like the joy and the gift of being able to sort of peer back in these little creases in the second half of 20th century history and read about somebody who I would have never otherwise read about. And so I was sort of like in the trenches in that way. And I very rarely thought about like my own obituary or my own death, or, or even the specter of death. It, it kind of got normalized in the process, but I didn't really dwell on it almost ever. It's like opening up a world, though. As you said, like the morgue is an amazing world. Yeah, yeah. All right, question? Yeah, hi. I'm curious if you found it to be important for your career to kind of have a beat or create certain things that people reach out to you? I think the greatest beauty of documentary film is when you can be exposed to something, especially if it illuminates human oddity and human beauty and human ingenuity and devotion and humanity when you don't expect it. And I think that more film, I wish more films had the chance to do that. And, and it was really hard to make both of these films because 
um, when you pitch it, nobody understands what it's going to be yet, and ne nor neither did I. But the pr I, I also really believe in the process of investigation as the primary mode of making a film in the first place is so powerful. You don't know what you're going to find, and the uncovering of the of the material creates the vocabulary with which then you make the film, and. Um, that to me is like a really pure documentary process. And no one knows until they sit down and watch the final cut what it really ever meant to be. And so that's what compels me. And I, I would never really feel like making a film about something that I already knew a lot about. Like it's that investigation that energizes the process. And so, it wasn't a deliberate choice. There was no other choice. But like when I find out about something that's so um, that taps me and says this is amazing, then do it. Well, I think that's great advice, for everybody. <laughs> so maybe we'll wrap up here. Thank you so much, Vanessa. We really enjoyed this. Well, thank you. Thanks to everybody for coming. Great. So in the end, that is the best advice, isn't it? I mean, when you find something amazing, just do it. Indeed. Very inspiring words from Vanessa Gould. Especially the part where she talked about how she got turned down 10 times, and that actually just made her more determined. That inspired me. Thanks again to Vanessa for coming up to the J School and taking us all behind the scenes of Obit. You can watch it for yourself on YouTube, Amazon Video, Google Play, and in iTunes. So let's pivot now to a few recommendations. Abby, what's, what have you watched, heard? I was lucky enough to see a new documentary last weekend called Jane, a biographical documentary I've about the great things about that. legendary chimpanzee researcher and icon Jane Goodall, um, made by director Brett Morgan, which features some truly mesmerizing, never-before-seen footage of her original time in the jungle and shows how she really revolutionized our understanding of the natural world. So did she take a camera with her into the jungle? She actually had been there for five months when National Geographic sent a um, shooter out to her, um, and then he spent a long period of time with her, and apparently that footage, this beautiful footage of her in those early days um, has never been seen before, so it's quite really captivating and, and I learned a lot. Hmm. Um, also, I happened to see a little bit of um, another iconic American, another iconic figure, Joan Didion, um, The Center Will Not Hold, which is on Netflix now, uh, made by her nephew, Griffin Dunn. Um, filmmaker in his own right? Yes, actor and filmmaker. Um, so I learned a lot about Joan and Jane in new documentaries recently. Well, while you were watching this very intellectual, esoteric fair, I was laughing, uh, amusing myself with the documentary called Too Funny to Fail. It's uh, streaming on Hulu. And it is the story of Dana Carvey and his days immediately following leaving SNL when he made the fateful decision to do a sketch comedy show for ABC in primetime. And... It was so bad. I, I actually think parts of it were hilarious. But what's entertaining about it is that they gathered these unknown actors to fill out his troupe. And these actors come forward now to talk about what it was like and reconstruct it. And they are people like Stephen Colbert 
and Steve Carell, um, who are, right. of course, all these big superstars now, and Robert Carlock, who is Tina Fey's partner and did 30 Rock, and um, Robert Smigel, who is did all the crazy funhouse videos for SNL, and they were giving carte blanche to just be as crazy as they could be, and it was just way too crazy. And wow. the, it, it's a very rueful kind of wry look back at this painful time in their past, but they can't help but just be hysterical as they're talking about it. And how many years ago was this that this happened? Like 10, 15 years ago? It was at least 15, yeah. I think Sounds like they longer. were ahead of their time. I will be checking that out. All right. Coming up soon on the podcast, we will have interviews with the makers of more great films, such as, take it away, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to feature a documentary called Nobody Speak, which is about the Hulk Hogan Gawker uh trial, lawsuit. Right. The end of Gawker. Gawker, rest in peace. And all the First Amendment issues that it raises. Right. Oh, my God. That's an incredible documentary. Also, we're going to have a conversation with uh, executive editor of The Washington Post, Marty Barron. Of Spotlight fame. Of Spotlight fame with their chief correspondent, Dan Balls, who is the political um, Guru. Sort of go- godfather yeah. of a whole generation of political reporters um, who are going to be here soon for the 2017 John Chancellor Award celebrating Dan's lifetime achievement in journalism. Yes, I think I would welcome everyone to come and attend, but I actually think it's completely oversubscribed even now. Um, so, but if you want to attend any of our Film Fridays, you can check out the online events calendar at journalism.columbia.edu slash events. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad Miriam Sitz with the assistance of our special projects coordinator, Millie Christie Durvaux, and our DuPont fellows, Katia Tubman and Ingrid Holmquist. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod and visit us at OnAssignmentPodcast.org. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of On Assignment.